Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 25, Matthew writes, At that time Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The chapter began with Jesus' explanation of the ministry of John the Baptist in verses 1 through 9. And then the chapter continued with Jesus' condemnation of certain cities in verses 20 through 24. Now Jesus is going to issue an invitation to those who labor in self-righteousness or who are burdened with guilt or despair or hopelessness. The rebellion against the king has already begun and soon that rebellion is going to result in open rejection of Jesus. And what's Jesus going to do? What's Jesus going to do? He's going to turn to his father in prayer. He's going to acknowledge God's sovereignty in all things. He's going to give him thanks. And that becomes the very first lesson, doesn't it? Especially when rejection and renunciation and and rebellion, difficulty, circumstances, it becomes a lesson for each and every one of us. What will we do in times of distress and what will we do in times of deep difficulty? The very first thing that we should do is thank God that he's in charge and that he is in control and that the will of God should always govern our lives. Jesus is willing to bypass those who are wise in their own eyes and proud in their own heart. He's willing to accept those who will simply trust God and trust God's Messiah. We're not always privy to the mystery of God's will, but we can adore him and obey him. Here, Jesus will issue an invitation For all to come to him. The message of salvation is no longer limited to the Jews as it was in chapter 10 verses 5 through 6. The Lord Jesus is going to throw open the door and issue an invitation to everyone who will believe in him and embrace him. And take their yoke upon themselves. Take his yoke. 
The religious leaders had bound many a heavy burden on the people. We saw that, well, we're going to see it in Matthew chapter 23, verse 4. But the, their religion of sacrifice and the religion of ritual and the, the religion of law keeping didn't give them rest, didn't give them peace. No human philosophy, no man-made religion, nothing that you can invent on your own can bring peace to the human heart. And that's why it begins in chapter 11, verse 25, where it says, at that time, what time? It's the time after the condemnation when the rejection and the rebellion has set in that Jesus answers and says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and the prudent. That's the time to pray to your Father. It's when your husband or your wife or your children or your grandchildren give you the news that I don't really believe in the Bible and I don't really believe in Jesus and I just want to live my life however I want to live it. Your first choice is to panic, but I'm going to suggest to you that you not panic, that you pray. And that you remember that God is in charge of all things. Jesus thanks God for concealing the message of salvation and the mission of the Messiah from the wise and prudent, we might translate that proud. This is the religious establishment. These are the scribes, the Pharisees, the doctors of the law. These are, for the most part, the people who have rejected Jesus and his message. There are two other times, by the way, where Jesus will express thanks. When Jesus takes the loaves and, and gives thanks and expresses thanks for physical life in John chapter 6, verse 11. And then again in John chapter 11, verse 41, in, in the raising of Lazarus, when Jesus says, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. There Jesus expresses thanks for the upcoming victory of life over death. But here, here Jesus Jesus is, is expressing thanks for imparting spiritual life to those people who are simple and humble and open. Even though the Father has concealed Jesus from the wise and the proud, Jesus reveals himself and appeals to everyone who will accept him and trust him and believe him. Jesus isn't opposed to reason or, or intellect or wisdom. So when he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise, he's not simply talking about people who are smart. He's most likely talking about people who have an exaggerated sense of their own intelligence. Some people enjoy, let's just be blunt, some people enjoy greater intelligence than others. It's just the way God has handed out the goods. I think I told you that when my father would go into a pizza place, he would go, my, the pizza guy would say, hey, Nemo, do you want me to cut this pizza into four slices or six? And my, my father would go, you know, I don't think I'm hungry enough to eat six slices. I think you should cut it into four. 
I go, Dad, you know, whether it's four slices or six, it all adds up to one pizza. Even though the Father has concealed Jesus from the wise and the self-proud, remember, this is the pride. It's pride that in part is in operation. Jesus is opposed to intellectual pride that serves as a substitute for the revelation of God. There was a rather simple farmer who once approached John Wesley and he told the famous evangelist, you know, God isn't impressed with all your book learning. God could care less whether you know Greek or Hebrew. And the wise Wesley said, you know what? God isn't impressed with your ignorance either. <laughs> One Bible writer wrote, quote, the heart, not the head, is the home of the gospel. The brain doesn't keep the gospel out of the heart and the heart doesn't keep the truth out of the, out of the head. It, it is humility, not stupidity, that allows someone to receive the gospel and receive Jesus in their heart. Almost invariably, my atheist friends, or at least at some point in a conversation, someone might tell me, I'm an atheist. And I'll go, hey, are you an intellectual atheist or an emotional atheist? And most of them are so proud that they'll go, of course I'm an intellectual atheist. And I go, okay, let's just make sure that we understand which God it is that you don't believe in. Well, I don't believe in any God. So you don't believe in the God of the Bible? No. Well, Tell me again, which, which is it? Which is the God that you don't believe in? I don't believe in any God or no God. So you don't believe in the God of the Bible who knows all things, who's self-existent, who's, self who is everywhere, who's created all things. Is that the God you reject? Yes. Now let's just for purposes of discussion make sure we understand something. You're not God, right? Of course not. So you don't know everything about everything. No. Is there any evidence anywhere that you might be willing to embrace that might cause you to change your mind? You can't prove to me there's a God. You're exactly right. And you can't prove to me that there isn't a God. It's humility, not stupidity that allows someone to receive the gospel. You see, for some people, reason and faith are placed at opposite ends of a self-constructed boxing ring, and then they're asked to have at it. But that is not what the Bible does. The Bible doesn't pit faith against reason and reason against faith. Intimacy with God is not dependent on raw intellect. Being smarter doesn't equate to being closer to God. And so it's always my task. 
How can I speak to your head? And also, how can I speak to your heart? Jesus has preached the greatest message of hope and liberation from sin and forgiveness and acceptance by God. Jesus has has preached the greatest message. He's performed the greatest miracle. And I want you to think this through. He's preached and he's performed miracles and he's rejected. It makes perfect sense to me that if people can reject God's offer of love and hope from the mouth of Jesus, it makes perfect sense to me that they're going to reject the offer from my mouth. Jesus is perfect and I am imperfect. Jesus is complete and I'm incomplete. The preaching of Jesus is perfect and my preaching is imperfect. His witness is perfect and my witness is imperfect. But men's rejection of Christ proves not my failure, but their failure. Not Jesus' failure, but their failure. So when it says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things, these things is a reference to the things of the kingdom, to the things of salvation, to the things of mercy and grace and hope and forgiveness and love. Who are the wise and the prudent? Here the word wise means intelligent. It carries with it the idea of it educated. It seems to include the idea of being instructed, but it also seems to include the idea of not simply being instructed by the revelation of God or the word of God, but from the wisdom of this world. And so these are those who are wise in their own eyes. These are the people who are impressed with their own academic accomplishment, with their own credentials. They think that it is their mind and their credentials that will give them access, some of them, to God. Others don't even hold out any hope that they're going to have access to God. Bertrand Russell, the famous atheist was asked the question what are you going to do when you discover that it was that you were completely wrong and Bertrand Russell along with some of the new atheists have said I'm going to tell God why didn't you give me more evidence but you know what's interesting there doesn't seem to be enough evidence to satisfy the person who isn't interested in evaluating the evidence. Paul the Apostle ranked with some of the top thinkers of his generation. But even Paul didn't trust his education or his training or his wisdom apart from Christ. In Colossians chapter 2 verse 3, he writes... Concerning Jesus, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, intelligence, wealth, social standing can serve either as a blessing or as a curse. God's gifts become God's curses when we rely on them instead of him for our fulfillment. Intelligence is a gift of God. But intelligence is a gift. 
that can be perverted by pride. And when it's perverted by pride, it becomes a barrier to God because trust is in the gift rather than the giver. So how has God hidden these things? I'm going to suggest to you that the Lord will use even people's pride and their arrogance and their selfishness and their haughtiness and their conceit to keep even the most basic principles hidden. I asked a person one time, what is it that you believe? And he goes, I don't believe in nothing. And I said, that's so very interesting to me. You know, Aristotle wrote that nothing is what rocks think, dream about. Are you saying, you can, I'm just quoting Aristotle. You can take it for what it's worth. The gospel can't be discovered or explained by human reason alone. It has to be revealed and proclaimed to the human heart by divine revelation and the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Man didn't invent the gospel. God did. Jesus isn't simply contrasting smart people with dumb people. He isn't taking educated people on the one hand and uneducated people on the other. He's contrasting those who are wise in their own eyes with the wisdom of the world and those who are willing to embrace the revelation of God. The proud person will not, cannot, won't submit to the wisdom of God. And the religious person who relies on good character or good works or traditions or observance of holy days has no better chance of going to heaven than the person who trusts her own wisdom or intelligence or wits on the day of judgment. Imagine a person lives a life of rebellion and disobedience and stands before the throne of God and says, I'll think of something. I'll think of something when I get there. In John chapter 12, verse 37 through 40, we read, But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed the report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. Isaiah saw in times past that there would be a group of people who would say, I don't get it. I don't see it. I don't feel it. I don't understand it. Because they don't want to. Because they're looking for an excuse to satisfy themselves and continue in the rebellion and that's why Jesus says, but he's revealed them to babes. Look at the end of verse 25. Thank you that you've revealed them to babes. 
Babes aren't hot chicks from California in this context. My wife is a babe from California. Here, the reference isn't to age, but to spiritual condition. Having all of my babies here, having my children and my grandchildren here, and having intense, up-close, and personal time with Django and Peyton, babies are helpless. Babies are dependent. Babies are needy. Babies have to be taken care of every moment of every day. Jesus reveals himself to such, the helpless, the dependent, the needy. One unknown poet wrote, quote, Still to the lowly soul he doth himself depart, and for his dwelling and his throne he chose the humble heart. God will choose not the proud heart, not the self-sufficient heart, not the one who is intellectually satisfied with their own circumstances. In verse 26, it says, Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. What in the world does that mean? It means that God is sovereign. God acts according to his own will. And all the while, he respects your will. Even so, Father, for it seemed good to you in your sight. In what sense? That some in Pride and rebellion and disobedience would turn away from God. And some in humility and deep need would turn to him. There's only a tiny percentage of the world's population that rejects the notion that there is a God. The vast majority of people on earth believe that there's some kind of God, but they imagine whatever this God is, uh, or however this God exists, that this God really isn't offended by sin, that this God doesn't really care about sin's consequences. They don't really believe that sin is harmful. The sovereignty of God insists that God will always do what is good according to the plan of God and the will of God and the revelation of God and according to the plan of God, the will of God and the gospel of God, it was always a part of God's plan that you would really get to choose or choose otherwise to believe or not believe, to receive or not receive. And look what Jesus says in verse 27, because it's unbelievable. If, there, if, if someone said, Gino, what do you think is the most shocking verse in all of the New Testament? It might be verse 27. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. The statement is so powerful, incredible, almost unbelievable. Let me spell it out for you. Jesus is claiming a unique relationship with his father. Unique. When he says, all things have been delivered to me by my father. 
And no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. We might translate this this way. Absolutely everything has been handed over to me by my Father. And no one really knows the Greek word epi, ginoskei. What does that mean? No one really knows personally, intimately, relationally, the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. I want you to listen carefully to what this passage says and to what this passage means. Jesus is making the outrageous statement that no one can know God apart from Jesus Christ. And that might annoy you. It might bother you. It might upset you. You might be alarmed, troubled, even incensed by what Jesus is saying. But I need you to be very very careful because note it's not Gino Geraci who's making this claim Jesus is making the claim when Jesus in John 14 says I'm the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the father but by me you might argue Well, how can you simply dismiss every Jew, every Hindu, every Muslim, every atheist, every agnostic, every skeptic, every Christian scientist? How can you with one fell swoop say what you're saying? And all I can repeat is what Jesus said. There's no way to come to the Father except through Jesus. This is maybe the most difficult task of all. It's allowing Jesus to be in charge. It's allowing God to have his secrets. It's allowing Jesus to be in charge. It's allowing God to have his secrets. But here's what Paul wrote. We preach Christ and him crucified. Paul said that I didn't determine to know anything among you except for Jesus and Jesus alone. And so we have to teach what the text says. There's no salvation apart from the Lord Jesus. There's no name given under heaven whereby men must be saved. Many people inside and outside of the church find this statement to be arrogant and narrow and as Captain Hook told Peter Pan, bad form. This is bad form. You can't say this. We have to assume that Jesus has chosen us, his saints, and that we have to tell everyone the gospel without exception, without hesitation. We have to assume everyone is lost who doesn't hear the gospel, believe the gospel, confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. We love them. We share the gospel with them. If need be, we will die for them. But what if they choose not to? What if they say, I don't believe the Bible, I don't believe Jesus, and I don't believe the gospel? I think we need to do what Jesus did. We pray to the Father, and we say, Father, you get to be in charge of everything and everyone. 
In your grace and in your mercy, you've presented love and life and hope in the person of Jesus. But in your sovereignty, in your absolute sovereign will, you gave people real hearts and real minds with the ability to choose or choose otherwise. Jesus is making the most outrageous claim ever made by anyone. That he is the center of Christian faith and that only Jesus can reveal God to human beings. And I need you to think about this because Jesus isn't in the business of giving people false hope. Jesus doesn't want to leave people with the false impression that if they're decent and good, they'll be saved. That, if, that they have a right to believe whatever they want to believe. But if they're proud and self-sufficient and choose not to believe that there really is no such thing as sin, that there really is no savior, there is no heaven, there is no hell. They're free to believe that. That won't make it true. Believing that there is no God won't make it true. And believing that there's no such thing as sin won't make it true. Because it won't take away the horror and it won't take away the pain and it won't take away the consequences of sin. To the self-respecting Jew... Listening to these statements, it became impossible to ignore the fact that Jesus was claiming an authority and equality with God, which would turn most of them away from him. The philosophy and wisdom of men can't reveal God. Entertainment can't reveal God. Both philosophy and entertainment can't quench the nagging suspicion that maybe there is rhyme and reason to why we're here. Maybe there is a reason why there's something rather than nothing. Maybe there's a reason why we think and act. Maybe there's a reason why God sent Jesus. And so look what it says, approaching Christ in faith. Look at the beginning of verse 28. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. Think where you're at in the text. The Jews are a religious people. The Jews have Moses and they have the law. They go to temple. They offer sacrifices. They give to the poor. They pray. They read the scriptures in the original languages. But rather than lighten the load of guilt and sin, religion only seemed to pile the guilt higher. Burning coals of inadequacy and deficiency and failure. Religion that exposes sin but provides no remedy for sin only increases the pain. It only creates further depression. Legalism that demands perfection but can only arrest a person and sentence a person and punish the offender. All it does is increase the burden. Sin is a burden. Guilt is a burden. Failure is a burden. So when Jesus says, come to me, He's not simply saying, go to God. When Jesus says, come to me, 
you should be shocked. Because what he is saying is that I am God's fully authorized representative. He doesn't say, come to me and I'll send you back to Moses. Come to me, I'll send you back to ritualism, legalism. Come come to me and I'll send you back to good works so that you can save yourself. When Jesus says, come to me, it's not simply the command of a holy savior, but it's the cry of a concerned father. My wife tasked me with watching Django while she was getting ready. She goes, look, I'll be back. 10 minutes. Here's what I want you to do. Just watch him. So my Django is on the bed. He goes to grandpa's light. He's holding onto the light. I think he's going to be fine. He lets go. He falls off the bed and hits the ground. I wasn't given a whole a big job, just, just that one job. Just watch him. So grandpa says to Django, come to me. Come to me. I don't have all kinds of abilities, but I do have the ability to comfort, support, Jesus has come to me. When he says, come to me, he is making a declaration. He doesn't say, go back into the world because it will save you. He doesn't say, think carefully about all of your options. It isn't about wealth or power or status or influence or fame. None of those things can save you. A life of good deeds and a legacy of charitable contributions can't save you. A lifetime of good deeds can't erase the spiritual consequences of rebellion against God. Only Jesus can save you. And based on what Jesus just simply said when he says no one can reveal the father except for me when Jesus says come to me it can't mean stay away it can't mean come to me and I'll trick you and fool you and I'll reject you come to me but guess what you'll never really measure up the bible says that you he will in no wise cast you out here's the very first question you should ask yourself is this invitation real Everything that you know about Jesus, everything that you've learned about Jesus, everything that you've read about Jesus, does he leave you with the impression that he's going to lie to you about something so important? And so you have to ask that question. Is it real? The invitation is real. But that doesn't mean you go to him in pride. And self-sufficiency. You have to go to him in humility and faith. Jesus is extending a real invitation for people to come to him in humility and faith. And look what it says at the end of verse 8. All you who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. 
all you who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. The one who feels no burden, no weight, no sin won't come. The word labor means to bear a burden, and it's the word translated weary in John 4, 6. When it spoke of Jesus, he was wearied after the journey. There are many forms of labor which can bring mental, emotional, physical, spiritual exhaustion. I know that the holidays, time of joy, time of receiving and giving presents, but sometimes it can be exhausting having so much fun, huh? Heavy laden is perfect passive participle for tidzo. You may not know what that means and you may not even care what the perfect passive participle means, but it only occurs here and in Luke eleven forty six. It means loaded down. It means burdened. It seems to mean loaded down and burdened, but the burden isn't always related because you've done something wrong. It could actually mean because you've done something right. In government service, you might serve. You might be a doctor. You might be a lawyer. You might be a scientist. You labor to relieve suffering. You labor to impart justice. You use your time and talent and treasure in meaningful pursuits to really, really help people and bring happiness. But it's still a lot of work. We can become weary in service to the world. We can become weary in service to formal religion. We can become weary in service to self, which is perhaps the most sinister form of slavery. We only think about our friendships. We only think about our relationships. We, we only think about our own honor, our own ease, our own comfort, our own security, our own enjoyment. Or we become slaves to Satan and steeped in gross sin, violence, disobedience, drunkenness, self-worship, sexual immorality, pride, jealousy, bitterness, despising God's word, sowing division among the saints. The list could go on and on and on. What we put first should be put second or last, tradition, job, family. There's nothing wrong with tradition and there's nothing wrong with your job and there's nothing wrong with your family. It only becomes a problem if you deny God his proper place. But everyone who's laboring under the heavy burden of sin and guilt and failure and inadequacy and rejection, they're welcome. That's what Jesus is saying. There are voices in this world that offer rest. They'll give you a timeshare in Disneyland or timeshare in Mexico. There's rest, there's vacation, but it's always artificial. It's always temporary. Human beings need a rest that is real and lasting. 
The world knows about the mental and emotional weight of fear and anxiety and worry and despair and fear of the future. People are burdened by doubt and questions and problems. They're weighed down in their heart with defeat and disappointment and misunderstanding. They're weighed down in their conscience. They desperately want rest from the guilt, the burden, the bondage, the pressure. It never seems to let go. They're weighed down in their will, always saying yes to sin, never saying yes to Jesus they're weighed down in mind in conscience in will desperate for rest and look what Jesus says I'll give rest it's one word in the Greek language anapauso you may not again know what that means in the context but literally it reads in the original language I will rest you isn't that interesting I will rest you in what sense it's his presence that brings rest he himself is your rest We don't receive rest as a gift to be kept in cold storage. It's his warmth that gives you rest. It's his presence that gives you rest. It's his friendship that gives you rest. It's his relationship that gives you rest. Augustine famously said, you have created us for yourself and our heart cannot be filled and stilled until it finds its rest in you. There's a Spanish proverb that says, how beautiful it is to do nothing and then rest. I I love that. How beautiful it is to do nothing. What are you doing? Nothing. What do you plan to do after that? Rest. We hear his tender voice. It's given as a promise. It's divine. I. I. His is the greatest power. His is the right to respond. His is the unique and exact knowledge of need and how to supply it and and filling the void inside of you, filling the empty places. I, and it is faithful, will. I will. Jesus brings certainty. He's never broken his word. His very presence will make you calm. I will. It doesn't say I won't. I will give. He gives, not sells. He doesn't barter. He doesn't trade. It's gratis. It's through grace. It's not merely shown or told. It is his possession. It is a possession that he is willing to share. It is faithful. It is free. It is personal I will give you not your mother not your brother not your sister not your child or your grandchild this is not something that you can appropriate for someone else it can only be appropriated by you it's faithful and free and personal rest in your mind in your heart in your conscience in your will how is this even possible you have to accept the invitation 
All of you have been invited somewhere to do something. And you accept the invitation. Or you decline the invitation. But you have to accept the invitation. Surrender and obey. Your rest is in a person, not in a religion. Rest means fixed, settled, confident, trustful. In the dictionary, rest is leaning, reposing, depending. I think all of that's true. And so when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest. It's interesting. He says it's a rest, not just simply in your mind and in your body, but in your soul. I want you to think about this because this is what Jesus is doing. He's in, look what it says, look at the verbs. He's extending the invitation. Come, learn, rest, submit. By the way, to the Jew, a yoke was an instrument of subjugation and submission. They were used on people by enemies, on animals by farmers. And the fact that Jesus refers to this yoke as his yoke may mean a couple of things. It may mean that the yoke the the father gave to the son. In other words, he's in effect saying, I'm going to give to you what my father has given to me. In which case it would mean a willing yoke to go where the father wants, to do what the father wants, to submit to what the father wants. Jesus is a carpenter. It makes perfect sense to me that he perhaps made yokes. Remember, a yoke is a wooden instrument made to fit the animal to exact specifications so that the yoke wouldn't chaff or scratch or injure the animal. God makes a yoke that will fit Jesus perfectly. And so God makes a yoke that will fit you perfectly, that will be appropriate exactly for you that won't work on anyone else. God makes a yoke to fit you. And so he says, learn from me. The word learn is closely associated with the word disciple. Jesus means, as much as you may chafe it and against it, it means learn in a submissive way. Jesus is gentle and humble. He isn't going to beat you or threaten you, or manipulate you, or frighten you. Which is exactly the opposite of Satan's awful, crushing, punishing, painful yoke. Jesus won't give you a burden too heavy to bear. And in the end, he will bear it himself. The yoke of obedience that Jesus gives, I want you to think about this, is obedience to him. It's not obedience to me. It's to him. Submission to Jesus results in liberation of the soul. In verse 30, my yoke is easy. 
and my burden is light. Why is Jesus' yoke easy? Not simply because it's light. I need you to know the answer. It's because it fits so well. It's easy because it fits so well. Jesus will give us what suits us. He will give you that which is absolutely appropriate for you. So are you fatigued? Are you exhausted? Can you feel the pressure on your soul? Alan Redpath wrote that you, that you never lighten the load unless you can first feel the pressure on your soul. It's funny how a 20-pound baby can feel like 100 pounds after eight hours of carrying him around. You're never used of God to bring blessing until God opens your eyes and then makes you really see what it is that you need to really see. You see, Jesus doesn't just simply reveal the need to you. But he'll protect you. Because sometimes it's scary. The moment that Jesus says, come to me. You should ask the question, what am I going to find? Rest. Protection. Hope. Life. Because he will give you exactly what you need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I know that in the grand scheme of things, there are those who will submit and those who will rebel, those who will agree, and those who will walk away but in the end, Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, we trust you sovereignly. Lord, you designed the universe in which we live to be one in which people get to make choices. And that you yourself respect those choices. But Lord, again, we thank you that there's a real invitation, a real offer, a real hope, real love, real salvation, real hope. And so, Lord, I pray that each and every person within the sound of my voice would turn from their sin and turn to the Savior and trust that he will protect you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.